And now I invite you to take a Bible to open it to the book of Galatians, where we're continuing in a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And we come today on what is Pentecost Sunday, the celebration of the birthday of the church, when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, then spent about 40 days with his disciples. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father, and he told them to wait in Jerusalem because another helper was going to be sent and that he was going to send them another helper that as he returned to his father, that they would know that they would never be forsaken, that they would never be alone and that they were to wait then. And part of the intentionality of that is that Pentecost was the next big festival time for the Hebrews. They, wherever they would have lived, many of them who could, tried to get back to Jerusalem for Passover. And so it was a time in Jerusalem when people were gathered from all over the world. And so many people from different parts of the world heard about Jesus and then heard that he died on the cross. And as they came back now for the celebration of Pentecost, so many of them are wondering, so whatever happened with that whatever happened to his followers they they said something about him rising from the dead we were hearing some rumors and so Jesus specifically told his followers to wait because God had an intentionality in his timing that when people from all over the world were gathered again he would do something miraculous so that when it took place now that message could spread as people then returned home and they could say We've seen his disciples. They're not scared. They're not running. They aren't following now another Messiah. They're still following Jesus. They saw him rise from the dead. And we saw them do things, miraculous signs and wonders, that can only be explained by the presence of the Spirit in their lives. That's Pentecost Sunday. It's the birthday of the church. And today would be the Sunday that we mark that occasion. And that's part of why we're going through this series of looking at So when God gave that and fulfilled that promise, what what was his goal? What was his intention in giving us the Spirit? And Paul gives this description of the type of life that you and I would be able to live because the Spirit is in our lives. Because none of us are left to our own strength or our own wisdom, but we have this gift from him, and this is the kind of fruit that should be exhibited by us. This is Galatians 5, 22 to 24. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So that's the description. It is a singular fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, but then we get these seven different words that give us characteristics and description of what this fruit is like, so that as we approach it, our goal is not to say, well, I like love and I like peace, so I don't really care about patience or gentleness. Well, no, no, no. The goal is that we would see all of these things in increasing measure manifested in our lives. And these three verses are in a larger section that we've been saying every week is where Paul is talking about living, walking and living by the Spirit. So that one of the dangers we want to avoid is coming to this list and thinking, oh, these are all the things we have to do and do really well in order for God to embrace us, in order for him to accept us in the family. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Paul knows that salvation is by grace alone. None of us could do these things in our own strength. They are not 
our natural disposition. They're not what we're inclined to do. We need this power of the Spirit to be able to do these things. And so as we hear it described more fully, our goal is not to become overwhelmed with, oh, wow, this is everything that's required of us, but as much to realize that's how good God is. This is what he wants to be borne out in my heart and your heart. When we pray that prayer, Lord, make it on earth as it is in heaven, this is part of what fits that description. If we lived like this, and if as a community of people we lived like this, just imagine how much better the world would be if it was populated with people manifesting these fruit, these characteristics that come from on high. But we want to understand specifically, we want to think about each word because they're each deep, faithfulness. It's actually in the Proverbs that the the question, it's stated in Proverbs, many a man proclaims his love, but a faithful one who can find. It's this kind of discouraging proverb right in the, in the middle of the book in Proverbs 26. You know, Proverbs gives all of these things. You know, do this, don't do this, do this, and don't do that. And then in Proverbs 26, there's so many people who proclaim their love, but a faithful man who could find. And then the next verse doesn't answer the question. It just moves on to another proverb. <laughs> but it's out there that for all of us knowing that, yeah, It's so easy to say you love someone. It's so much harder to do what love requires. It's so easy to say you'll do something and to say you'll act a certain way. And then we feel good when people say nice things to us. It's flattering when we get compliments. But when those words are put to the test over time and experience and through suffering and trial, how many of us do the things we said we would do? How many of us are able to be consistently and thoroughly faithful to the very things we said? And and so that proverb just lingers, the rhetorical question. So many people proclaim their love, but a faithful person who could find. And this is one of the difficulties when we think about faithfulness, because the opposite of it Uh, One way to think about it is almost being, uh, so if faithfulness implies loyalty over a long period of time, and then unfaithfulness is that just at some point in time, uh, you decide to check out and you're you're no longer obligated to the things that you said. So in the realm of uh, what you might, uh, a contemporary example would be those we call fair weather fans, you know, so they like a certain team as long as that team is doing well, okay, so they're fair weather it looks like they're supportive, it looks like they're excited, it looks like they're on your team, but the moment that team's not very good anymore, they find someone else to cheer for. So what that means is that for a certain length of time, there's a similarity between them. The person who is faithful and the person who is unfaithful for quite a long period of time are moving in the same direction. Whereas in some of these other ones, when we think about goodness versus evil or or patience versus impatience, they're moving in opposite directions the entire time. But in this one, when we think about faithfulness, it is that for a certain length of time, we thought we were going together. (laughs) And so two people are journeying together, and then eventually someone starts to veer off while another person stays straight and stays committed and stays faithful. And so At any one moment, it's hard to discern. You you can see someone's excitement, you can hear the things they're saying, and it sounds good and it looks good, but the the test of faithfulness 
is a test that can only be really discerned over a long period of time. Because when we're promising things about our future commitments, by definition, no one of us can know right now how that's going to (laughs) go. The future has not yet happened. And so only time will bear out who the faithful person is. But when this rhetorical question is asked by Solomon, I think there's wisdom on his part as one of the wisest men in the Bible to not answer it. The great answer, though, that comes from Scripture is not to now you and me to try to find the faithful person, but to realize that God is the only one who is thoroughly and always faithful. He's the only one that we could sing about and say, great is thy faithfulness. Uh, Amy's making something that she wants to be put up on on our wall from going down from our upstairs to our downstairs, and it's going to say, morning by morning, new mercies I see. And so yesterday, she's like, do you remember that was our wedding song? And I had to pause. (laughs) I don't know what the right thing to say in that moment is, because... I was like, wait a minute, Be Thou My Vision was our wedding. Like we had, I had my friend Tanya sing Be Thou My Vision. What is great is thy faith? She's like, it's the song we walked out to. Like, I wasn't paying attention at that point. I mean, once they said, you're done, you're good, it's happened. I don't remember what, but okay, that was the song that was played. It's a good song. And so I'm not even faithful in remembering things really well. None of us are. But that song can only be written about one person. Thoroughly faithful all the time, that when we're looking for someone who is able to always keep their promise, there's only one place we can go. And so it says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Yesterday I was asked uh, to officiate a funeral of someone I'd never met and of whom no one could tell me exactly what she thought or believed personally. That she was someone who was very, very private and so even people that had worked with her for a long time did not know what she did or did not believe. And so I had to think of what I would say then in a service, knowing very, very little about the person that I was asked to speak on behalf of in part. And so I went to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, where John says, this is the message that we've heard from the beginning and that we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I went there because for me it is the one thing we really, really have to believe about God if we're going to get to a place of trusting him. That as the Bible reveals him to us from Old Testament to New Testament, it declares the goodness of God. That he is holy that he is pure, that he is true, that he is faithful. And what that means is that 
however we interact with him and whatever we believe about him, when all of us stand before him, he will do what is good. And I don't doubt that for a second. And I find tremendous comfort in that. He's the one person who never changes. And he's the one person who's never making decisions on limited information or being deceived by hypocrisy or this or that. He is the one who knows everything. And at his core, he is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now that goes on to say, because of that, that goodness is meant to draw us to him and to invite us to confess our sins, to repent, to come to him and confess the fact that we are not good (laughs) and that we need him and that we need his goodness. But at the end of the day, as I think of the world, the future, myself, any other person I know, what the scriptures reveal is a God who is thoroughly good. That doesn't mean that God does everything we want him to do and God doesn't care about the choices that we make. No, I believe in the reality of heaven and hell. I believe that God in our humanity has given us the capacity to make choices. But I also believe that even everyone who, if they do reject God and wander away from him, will still be able to look at him and the judgment that he makes and say, he is good. He has done nothing wrong. There is no darkness in him. I wasn't set up to fail. I wasn't tricked into something. I wasn't, no. He is good. And if we don't believe that about him, it's hard to then have hope. Dallas Willard defines hope as the expectation of the good. So that if you tomorrow are expecting a really, really bad day, you know, you're like, oh shoot, it's Monday. This is how I, like this. And you think tomorrow's going to be a bad day. No one would really describe you then as having a a hopeful (laughs) mood today. If you anticipate that in the future there is good that you will encounter, then you have an anticipation of hope. And when we think about eternity and the one before whom all of us will face, do we anticipate ourselves coming before someone who is light, in whom is no darkness at all? It's later in that very same letter that he also says God is love. And so many people want to reflect on that. But here's the thing. If he's not also light and he's not also holy, then he'd be just another one of those things that the Proverbs would be written of. So many people proclaim their love, but a faithful one who can find. And so before John says he is love, he says he is light. Because if we can't count on that goodness, if that goodness is something that changes over time, then we don't know what we'll be dealing with. We don't know what we'll encounter. But if we know enough to say, yeah, he is good and he never changes and so he will always be good, that gives us reasons for hope and encouragement. And so Paul in his letter to the Galatians doesn't point then to himself or any other person to try to answer the question of where will we find faithfulness, but he points to the faithfulness of God. One other place I want to go is 2 Timothy. So if you have a Bible open, turn to 2 Timothy. This is on page 995. 
just a fascinating phrase in verses 11 through 13 of 2 Timothy. It's not just a saying that Paul is writing. He's referring to a saying that people in the church know and would have repeated. Verse 11, he says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Now, part of what's peculiar about the way this breaks out is that the way it's flowing, you're expecting in verse 13, by what's been said, is to say almost, if we are faithless, well, then he'll be faithless. But it doesn't say that. Because he can't be faithless. He cannot be unfaithful. And so in the previous one, if we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are unfaithful to him, we will never make him unfaithful. He cannot deny himself. He is thoroughly good. Which means he will be faithful to everything he said. Which means he will be faithful to the warnings that he issued. And so if he gave warnings, he will be faithful to their warnings. And there will be consequences to those who do not heed his warnings. And he will be faithful to his promises. And that those who receive his promises, there will be abundant blessing. But in both cases, he will be faithful. Our unfaithfulness is never reciprocated with his unfaithfulness. He is always faithful. He cannot deny himself. He is the good one. And so now going back to Galatians, as Paul thinks about this goodness of God and his faithfulness, in chapter one, Paul explains his whole story of conversion and now ministry as a testimony to the faithfulness of God. So Galatians 972, if you're using one of these Bibles, look at how Paul describes it. Verse one. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so that conviction that God has worked things out according to his will and that he is deserving of glory forever and ever. Why? Because he's eternally good forever and ever. There is no point that we won't be able to sing about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That song will never grow old. Because he will always be good and worthy of praise. And so then just a little bit further down, when Paul describes his conversion, verse 13, he says, You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So there again, Paul describes his whole conversion as the faithfulness of God to himself. He says, God had a will and a purpose and a plan before I was even born. And so even in my life, when in so many ways I proved unfaithful and unqualified, he remained faithful to the plan and the purpose that he had for me before I was even born. And because he can never be unfaithful, when he was pleased to reveal his son to me, he saved me. And so Paul understands that all of his hope rests in the faithfulness of God, not in his own faithfulness. And so now, as he says that we're supposed to manifest this fruit of the Spirit, that we are to be people who are characterized by faithfulness. Again, another way that we could mishear that is to think, okay, so what he's telling us to do is we have to be really good and we have to be good now over a long period of time. Well, actually, that's not what went wrong in the church. In the church, where they started to go wrong was where they started to become people that thought of themselves as morally superior than other people. They started relying on grace less and started relying more in their own strength and in their wisdom. So if you look in in chapter 3, this is what he says, O foolish Galatians, verse 1, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here, as Paul reflects on the faithfulness of God, he encourages the people in the church to have faithfulness to the grace of God. So that where so many of these believers are now getting off track is not that they're starting to live immoral lifestyles. Not that they're just starting to break all the rules. Oh, hey, you guys aren't being very faithful. You're just, it's total anarchy here. Where they're getting off track is that they're starting to rely on themselves again. They're starting to think about themselves, you know, I really am good. Maybe I did qualify for this. Maybe my background, my pedigree, my family history does make me more important in the body of Christ. And so that everything, every barrier that is broken down at the end of Galatians 3 between male and female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, those barriers are starting to creep back up. The Jews are saying, hey, we, we really are different than you Gentiles. And hey, we who are of noble society, you slaves, you, I don't, you're not quite as important in the body as we are. And so where the church is getting off track is not in rejecting rules, is not in rejecting morality, but in a creeping self-reliance and self-righteousness. No longer remembering that they're only here by grace that just like they were saved by grace and by the faithfulness of God, so too in their growing and in their maturing, they're totally dependent upon the grace of God. 
That's the type of faithfulness that he's calling us to. And that's what he's saying to them. You started down this road. Who tricked you or who persuaded you to get off of this road and to start going another way? Don't switch your loyalty to something else, especially something that's already been proven as bankrupt. I know that some of you always face the prospect of going on Monday to a place you don't want to go, a job you just hate. And so for you to find that you could either get a new job or eventually win the lottery so they don't have to have a job or something just sounds exciting because you have to prepare yourself in a special way just to stay motivated or positive about going to work. So wouldn't it be especially sad if you found out that your employer was bankrupt and there won't even be a paycheck at the end of your day and then you went to work on Monday? Someone would be like, what are we doing? (laughs) Now that's especially ridiculous. If you don't like going there, and it takes everything for you, and you've seen it's a dead-end street, but now you know you're not even going to get paid for it, then don't go. Do something else. Stay committed somewhere else. Try something new. And for Paul, what he's saying to all these people is that they were a part of a system that proved itself bankrupt, that there was, there was no check on Friday. And so he's, it's, just, it's hard for him to understand why would you go back to that? Why would you start to rely on yourself again? Why would you start to trust in your faithfulness or the faith? You're just going to set yourself up for broken promise after broken promise if you're looking to other people to do what only God can do for you. If you're looking for your spouse or your kids or your employer to always be faithful and to never change, to be thoroughly good in everything they do, wow, then we're set up for so much hurt and so much pain. And so he's saying to them, no, the fruit that the Spirit desires to work out in your heart is that you remain faithful to the goodness of God and to the grace that God offers, that you realize that that is always what you need for each and every situation. As the song goes on to say, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. 